0: Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now, let's dig deeper. Well, hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and Tim Cockrell is back with me today in the hot seat. Tim, welcome back. And uh, Tim and I are going to be discussing his recent sermon from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, Tim... It is good to have you back, and we're making steady progress through this letter to the church at Philippi, but I'm curious. In other books we've recently studied, and true, they've typically been longer. I'm thinking of Matthew. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of uh, Exodus mm-hmm. that we studied. Uh, we've taken larger passages each Sunday, whereas in this study we're generally studying. We've been focusing on smaller passages. Help us to understand your guiding principles when you're deciding how to divide passages each week. And I'm going to just throw in there this passage is the beginning of a real big discussion and big not so much in the number of verses number of words attributed to it but the the flavor of it just permeates scripture it's a in a very small capsule the whole gospel and how we are to be living how do you decide to divide at like at verse 4 instead mm-hmm. of going through verse 11 in this
1: case right yeah, there's a number of factors that go into it, especially when we're in a narrative um, you know, like Matthew or Exodus. Many times what we want to do is try to preserve the flow of the narrative. So sometimes that story actually will last a couple of chapters, but we don't want to just kind of cut it off as if you know these were just logical points we want to walk through. We want to feel the tension of the story and not necessarily unpack every detail of that narrative. When we get to the letters many times what we want to do is unpack it based on paragraph or thoughts. And you easily could study verses 1 through 11 altogether of chapter 2. But because this is such a central portion of this book, and because it is so dense as well as practical, as I walk through a shorter book like Philippians, I feel like we can afford to slow down a little bit, and really mull these truths. Whereas like, if you did that in, in Matthew, let's say, and you took it four verses at a time, you'd be in that book for a very, very long time. Now, some people will still take that approach, but I think what ends up happening with that is you lose kind of the big picture because you're so microscopic in your focus. Whereas for a short book like Philippians, I feel like you can do the smaller chunks but then still zoom out periodically to say, here's where we are in Paul's kind of flow of argument. Good. Well, for those of you who are interested in such things, there you go, straight from the
0: horse's mouth. So, Tim, thanks for that. The greatest threats to today's church often come from within. That or something like that is what you said in early in your sermon here this past Sunday. And as I'm thinking about that, that's pretty provocative. It's also very sobering, And I don't think you're necessarily talking only about ones whom Paul calls wolves, for example, in chapter 20 of Acts, who come in with the purpose of subverting the gospel message. There's a lot of other things, types of problems that come from within, other than those people who really aren't part of the body who are coming in.
1: Absolutely. You know, it's not just a false teacher, but that many times it's well-intentioned people who have selfish ambition and and the pride that Paul warns against. And so we begin to contend with each other, against each other, rather than contending for the sake of the gospel. And unfortunately, when we look at church history, the pages are full of churches that split and divide and splinter into however many thousands of denominations that we have now, And on occasion, those divisions have been over kind of key orthodoxy type questions, but many times it comes down to a difference of preference, a difference of practice, a difference of priority, and I think that the call to unity that Paul gives us here is just a reminder that we have to be on guard against this tendency in our own hearts, Because so many times the thing that leads to a church's downfall is not necessarily that they drift from orthodoxy, but that they begin to camp on individual agendas, they begin to make secondary things, primary things, and suddenly they they lose sight of the message of the gospel.
0: I'm reminded of a time, it's been a number of years ago now, probably about four or five years ago, uh, where the elders here at Grace were addressing a certain uh, a certain matter. And uh, at the end of the discussion, which took about a couple of three months, and it mm-hmm. was the call, that was two to three months' time, was the culmination of probably about three or four years of. Mm-hmm discussions back and forth over, over time. And uh, at the culmination there, we actually took a vote on this matter and it was seven to seven. Hmm. Now, obviously a seven to seven is a, is a no win for anybody. If if you want to call it a win, it was, but we weren't looking at it that way. It was obvious that God had spoken and we made a decision not to proceed further Mm -hmm. one way or another. It was sort of like a common, uh, not a common loss, not a common win, but a common. Hmm. Mm-hmm. hmm. And we walked out of that room literally and figuratively with our arms around each other mm-hmm. and loving each other, even though there were some sharp disagreements sure. about how to proceed. And it was really a blessing, but I think that goes to what you're talking about. The against what you're talking about, and that is, uh, you're saying, Hey, it's self, uh, you know, your ideas, my ideas are greater than yours or better than yours. We have these agendas, but I felt like each person came in with convictionally and then said, no, God is obviously not moving forward and we're okay with that.
1: Yeah. The ability to disagree without being disagreeable is a well, rare thing in well, our churches. Hard.
0: It really is. Well, let's move on. In the first two verses of this section, Paul calls the church members to be in full accord and of one mind, and, and in the adult Bible fellowship that I lead, we discussed on Sunday the importance of unity as opposed to uniformity. And I think you you talked about this as well. That sometimes requires negotiation. It requires compromise when making choices in a church context. But it might even mean making a decision to do something that I think or you think or anybody thinks is not the best way forward. Okay, so how does that glorify God if we're not doing the thing that God has told me, and I put that in air quotes, Mm
1: -hmm. is right. I think many times we as believers end up focusing most of our attention on the result rather than on the process. That we think, well, God's most concerned about the outcome, the achievement, the the results. But I believe God is as concerned, if not more concerned, with the process that we go through in order to get to that result. What... What heart posture are we demonstrating? What relational graces are we extending? Because God's design for the church is to bring very different people together such that our unity is not found in our uniformity or our affinity in certain areas, but rather that our unity is found in something that is beyond ourselves. And that is a sanctifying work. Maybe I'll just be speaking for myself here, but my wife and I, are very different, and we don't always agree on certain things, and we don't always see a a, perspe- a situation from the same perspective, and that many times will result in disagreements. But God's goal isn't necessarily that we agree on everything, see it exactly from the same perspective, but that, that we are unified and that we love each other and that we grow as a result of the insight and perspective of each other. And so th- I do think there comes a time where... As we dialogue within a church context, we can have convictions, we can have opinions, but we hold those in proper perspective that says, I could be wrong. I could be short-sighted in this. And that ultimately we trust that God is going to lead through his people and not just through a singular person's brilliance or or insight about what the future holds no matter
0: how brilliant our senior pastor might be i'm I'm not claiming anything (laughs) close to brilliance
1: but you know bart you and i sit in on elders meetings on a regular basis and there are many times where we don't agree and there are times where there's a vote that'll go you know seven to five or something like that and that's okay because what god is most concerned about is that we can remain unified even if we don't get our way And I think that's a real test of Christian maturity as well as humility, is that we are willing to be committed to a church even when it doesn't necessarily fit our preferences or our preferred direction.
0: So just to cap that off, unity does not mean uniformity. It does not need, mean necessarily unanimity. Although a lot of times we do have unanimity, mm-hmm. it's not always that way, and it's part it gets back to uh, enjoy the trip, not just the destination.
1: Right. Well, and even the unanimity sometimes we'll have a unanimous vote. I think sometimes that isn't necessarily even someone saying yes. I'm a hundred percent behind that, but it's a I can get behind it. I trust my leaders. Or I I believe that if this is the direction the congregation is going, I can be in submission to it, and I think that's a healthy perspective.
0: Well, then let's go there. Let's talk about how our church, Grace Baptist Church, makes decisions. Uh, If you look at our constitution, as our kind of a—I won't say it's our guiding document. The Bible, obviously, our guiding document, but it does help us to uh, determine how we're going to conduct business we have made comments in the past. You've made them. I know I've said this, that God does not teach in the Bible that the church local church or the church universal is a democracy. Mm-hmm. Yet we typically made our, make our decisions based on some of the principles in democracy, a uh, majority rule, uh, sometimes supermajority in certain decisions. For example, mm-hmm. when uh, we're calling a new uh, vocational mm-hmm. elder, vocational pastor, we have to have a supermajority of three quarters. Uh, what gives here? Why do? Why then do we use democratic principles if the church is not a democracy?
1: Yep. Well, I think as soon as we introduce language like democracy, it begins to feel very political. What we need to remember is that every one of us as believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. There's not a single person in the church that has more of the Holy Spirit than another. Now, there's more... Certain people that are more under the influence of the Spirit are more yielded to the Spirit through their growth and maturity. But I think what that's reminding us is that every one of us have the same spiritual resources in Christ, and every one of us are in submission to Christ as we look at the Bible. Therefore, we need each other's perspective to make sure that we don't have blind spots, to make sure we are not interpreting things just based on cultural paradigms or personal preferences. And so we want to hear the feedback of the congregation so that we make sure we are all united, that if there are questions or reservations, there's a forum in which those are, are asked. And if there's you know, somebody that doesn't feel comfortable, that they can, can assert that. That's valuable and important, not just for the leadership, but for the entire congregation. And so the way that we make decisions here at Grace is that we are elder-led and congregationally governed or affirmed. And so that also provides some helpful feedback for the elders, that the elders may say, hey, we believe, let's just say, you know, this, uh, this candidate for elder is a good candidate. Well, there may be some things that the congregation's aware of that the elders aren't. And so if that elder is not affirmed, that's a safeguard for the church because these spirit-led believers are providing insight and perspective that other spirit-led believers, believers didn't have access to. And so I think what it comes down to theologically is we call it the priesthood of believers, that we are all indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and therefore we want the whole congregation to be involved in the decision-making process. Now, with that being said, that doesn't mean that the whole congregation is going to vote on the color of the carpet and whether we're going to spend $10 on you know this piece of office equipment and things like that. There's a place for delegating and distributing responsibility under that, that big umbrella.
0: Sounds like you're saying then that uh, the use of voting majority rule type of, of language is a tool that we, uh, or, or I guess maybe the church's founders, if we can go back to the Grace Baptist Church founders, utilize that, those principles as a method of guiding uh, within the, we'll call it the theocratic mm-hmm. structure of the church where God is actually our ruler.
1: Yes, it's, it's building in that congregational involvement and feedback that is a vital part of what it means to be the church.
0: Okay, great. Well, then, can, can you share some thoughts on church decision-making then? And times, you know, we're, we're talking about submitting to one another here in chapter two. We're talking about uh, counting others as better as ourselves. But when it comes to just church decision-making, at times, when a church's elder's need to step up, make decisions that may be unpopular, but correct. What is the role of the elders then in that kind of situation where you've got maybe not everybody understands a
1: situation? Right. I think that that's one of the reasons why the character of your elders is the essential qualifying element when you're calling them. Because if you have elders that are not humble – that are self-seeking, that are greedy for gain, those types of things, well, then this type of dynamic can quickly be misused and abused to where power is wielded for personal benefit. But I do think that when we look at Scripture, there are a humbling number of times that the majority is not correct. And that doesn't mean, oh, we ought to get rid of, of seeking the input of the congregation but the, you know, whether we think about the Israelites in the Exodus, you know, of not being willing to go into the land because of their fear of the giants, whether we think about the Israelites calling for the, the crucifixion of Jesus in Jerusalem there at Passover, um, the Jews persecuting Christians, you know, there's just a number of different situations in which it's easy for people to, to go astray. And that's where leadership is called to guard and to guide the congregation to keep right priorities and they're accountable to God to do that. And that's why Hebrews 13 reminds congregation to, to be in submission to their leaders, not necessarily even because the leaders are always right, but because the leaders are going to give an account and they bear that responsibility. And so for the congregation to be fighting against that isn't good for the congregation and it isn't good for the leaders. And so, I mean, let's just think very practically as we went through COVID, there were a number of cases in which the leaders had to make hard decisions. We certainly did when I was up in Massachusetts that not everybody in the congregation agreed with. But even there, that's an opportunity for the church to demonstrate unity to where you have conversations with your elders. You trust they're going to listen well and that if they're wrong, they're willing to admit it. But that if they don't agree with you, it doesn't mean that they're neglecting that perspective, but rather that they're trying to do what they genuinely feel is in the best interest of the church.
0: Tim, in verse
1: four, Paul amplifies his call. And of course, we're talking here in
0: chapter two. Paul amplifies his call and there in verse three to count others more significant than yourselves. And he says there in verse four, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Can you share some practical examples of of what that might look like in daily life, maybe not even within the context of the church proper, but just every day, but also within the the context of the church proper? In other words, how can I train myself, thinking of the word discipline, that's Mm -hmm. where it just keeps coming back to me every day. How can I train myself to look out for others' interests, especially when everything that I see in this world tells me to do otherwise?
1: Right. Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I'm even wrestling through as I'm preparing this week's message, which emphasizes humility and the pattern of Christ and kind of following after his example. And as we were talking in preaching team yesterday, some kind of thoughts began to formulate that I'm not sure are fully formed, but I'll I'll just kind of talk it out loud. You
0: heard it here first. There you
1: go. Well, that for any of us, when we are young, because of our sinful nature, we are naturally self-absorbed. We are focused on our own agenda. We are Longing for accolades, many times it's born out of a level of insecurity too. And I think as we begin to grow, we maybe move from self-absorption to self-awareness. We maybe are a little bit more honest about our weaknesses, maybe a little more cognizant of how our behavior affects those around us. But I think what Jesus is actually driving us toward is not just self-awareness, but actually self-forgetfulness. That we aren't, as C.S. Lewis would say, we're not just thinking less of ourselves, but we are thinking of ourselves less. And so rather than constantly scanning the horizon for what do people think of me and how am I measuring up and how do I appear and what what have I achieved, that we begin to look for things that we can celebrate in other people. We look for the ways that God is working in the lives of those around us. And so your question is a good one of how do we do this practically? I think it's going to vary based on each individual person. But it starts with a mindset that says, I am called to build others up. I'm called to recognize and celebrate what God is doing there. And it, as with so many things in life, once we start looking for things, we start seeing them.
0: Wow. <laughs> They're, you know? They, they were probably there all along. Exactly.
1: You know, it's kind of like when if you buy a new car and all of a sudden you're driving around and you notice, hey, there's a lot of people that drive this particular car because you're just more aware of that. I think the more we focus on Christ our our focus naturally gravitates away from what we want what we need what we hope to be known as to what are the needs of those around me it still is a discipline we have to cultivate though
0: and that discipline is I'm going to suggest is un uh, it's not possible without the not only the indwelling of the holy spirit but we you know we talk often about the filling of the holy spirit mm-hmm. uh, that's not some weird out of this world thing in one way, yet it is on an, mm-hmm. in another. But Paul says in Ephesians five eighteen, "Don't be drunk with wine," seeming to indicate you know those things of the world, mm-hmm. but be filled with the Spirit. How how do we get filled with the Spirit?
1: Right. Well, I think it, it's a level of yieldedness. You know that so many things in our lives we're clinging to with clenched fists. You know I. I need to be able to get into that school, or I need to be able to marry this person, or I need to be able to get this job promotion, that the more we begin to rest in trust of what God is doing, then we are willing to go where he calls us to go and to give up what he calls us to give up because we're holding them with open hands. And I think that's why Paul begins in chapter 2, verse 1 to say, if you have encouragement with Christ, comfort from his love, Fellowship of the Spirit, affection, compassion. He roots us in the fact that if we have experienced the gospel genuinely and deeply, then we will draw from those spiritual riches that are ours in Christ. Is that antithetical
0: to what Paul later says here in chapter 2? He says, uh, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling in verse 12. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Is there a, a tension there?
1: I think there's a tension there. I don't think they're antithetical. Um, I like the way, I don't remember who said it, but that God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. Mm. You know, And that he, if we are, are doing things with the goal of trying to earn his approval, well, we're doing it from a wrong heart, and it's going to be filled with self uh, selfish ambition. But that if we are recognizing that God has rescued and redeemed us, then we are living out obedience. We are called to serve others, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude. And we are serving then not because of shame, but because we are looking at Christ who himself came to earth not to be served, but to serve. And so I do think that there is a tension that we have to maintain. It's not entirely passive, but it also doesn't all depend on us. It is Christ working in us and through us.
0: Okay, so let's go one other place here in this whole discussion. There's some for whom this next question, and this is from a member here at Grace, uh, people will resonate with this some. That person writes, how can we make sure that we are not sabotaging our own health by overcommitting ourselves to looking out for the interests of others? Have you ever felt that way?
1: I probably have felt that way. I'm not sure whether I've actually crossed that okay. line, but there is <laughs> there are those times where Yeah, especially when you're dealing with certain life stages. Maybe you've got really young kids. Maybe you have an aging parent that is, um, you're dealing with some difficult things or a a chronic illness where you just, you don't have the margin. There's a number of different scenarios where that can happen. I think this is where it's important to recognize that verse four says, look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's not saying that it? it is wrong to be concerned about your own interests. At the bare minimum, we need to be able to eat. We need to be able to sleep. We need to have clothes that we wear, those types of things. And so I recognize, I even talked to somebody after church on Sunday who who was wrestling through as I'm expending myself for someone else, when am I being selfish to say, I can't give anymore. And there's a lot of good books and articles that are out there written that we, we don't really have time to unpack right now. But All that to say, I think I'll speak for myself. If I have a danger, it is not to overextend myself. My danger is to tell myself I shouldn't have to sacrifice in this way. I shouldn't have to give up these things that I enjoy. I shouldn't have to tuck my kid in for the eighth time because they wanted to get out of bed for a drink of water again. And so I think just recognizing in my own life that there is a line that says, yeah, you're going to need to be able to draw a boundary, but that that boundary probably is, is further down the road than what I might like it to be. Now for each person that's going to look different and I'm not in a position behind this microphone to be able to say what that looks like, but I think that would just be my word of caution that yes, there is a line that is there. But that for Jesus himself, he many times in his life asserted his rights, said, no, my time has not yet come. But there did come a time where he did lay down his life, and like a lamb before its shears, was silent. And so we just need the, the wisdom and discernment of God to be able to know what that looks like in our lives.
0: And I really resonated with this question personally, because I can remember as a sophomore in college coming as close as i ever have maybe i crossed the line into depression i don't know mm-hmm. <clears throat> a series of circumstances took me to where i failed a t- test first test i'd ever failed uh, <laughs> the world the world ended at that point of course for me but i had a wise uh, counselor wise discipler who came alongside me he says just what you said tim look i know you want to build into others and i know you want to be faithful but you can't do that if you are not taking care of your, at least your basic needs Mm -hmm. and probably you need to go beyond your basic needs. So Mm -hmm. he pulled me off Mm -hmm. a lot of responsibilities I had for a period of time so that I could recover and be ready. Now this went back then to my tendency, Mm -hmm. which is to overcommit and seek to excel and be successful in serving God.
1: Mm -hmm. Now
0: that statement there, I hope anybody hears that obviously means that I'm doing this for not all the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that that can be a tendency in many of our lives. But I I saw that myself, and I've really tried to build that into my children. Mm -hmm. Hey, we do need to be about God's work. But as you said, we need to make sure we are not Forsaking ourselves and the basic needs that we have.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Jesus is instructive in in this, oh, where he says, he it, "There's he? there's more people that need to be healed there, but I'm going to withdraw and I'm going to go pray." You know that the disciples are going to be rowing the boat across the the lake, and I'm going to go sleep <laughs> because those he was human just like we are, and that he recognized that he had to keep proper priorities.
0: Tim, you mentioned it earlier uh, when I asked about where how you divided the the chapter here, or this section. Uh, you know, this next few verses here, about the next seven verses, rather poignant passage, uh, and narrative of what Jesus did by offering Himself as a sacrifice to satisfy what is really our uh, sin debt. Can you give some hints? What's in store next time? Help us uh, prepare and help us be ready. Give us a little more insight.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, this last week we looked primarily at the dangers that we need to avoid of, of pride and of selfish ambition. And we touched toward the end on that the solution for this is humility, but we didn't really unpack that a whole lot. So this Sunday we're going to try to unpack a little bit more of what that actually looks like, and even some of the things that we've discussed here during this podcast, and looking at Jesus as the ultimate example. Um, because there's this kind of downward movement as we look at the incarnation, that he surrendered his rights, he submitted to the will of God, he sacrificed his own comfort and, in fact, his very life for the needs of others. And that then, as he went down, he came up in God's exaltation of him and ultimately the vindication of That will happen someday when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. And so what Paul does is he says, you ought to have the same mindset, the same attitude and outlook that Jesus himself does. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just look carefully at the rich theology and the practical implications of it for what does it mean for us to walk in humility? What patterns do we need to put off and what patterns do we need to put on if we are to follow in the footsteps of Christ?
0: Key passage in Scripture and certainly here in Philippians. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate you being here with Thanks, us.
1: Thanks, Bart.
0: We've been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and you can access Grace Sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecederville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the Media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's word in Philippians chapter two. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at graceCedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's word.